Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Revelations, 21, 1 to 7. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. He who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, one month ago, uh, we took our two daughters to the most magical place on earth, Disney World, and uh, on one particular evening, uh, we stayed late at uh, Magic Kingdom uh, to watch the famous fireworks uh, illuminate the night sky. And what's cool about those fireworks is that they're all popping perfectly synchronized to all the classic Disney songs. And while the fireworks are popping everywhere, there are literally hundreds of projectors lighting up Cinderella's iconic castle like it's a blank canvas displaying snippets from every Disney movie uh, ever made. And this middle-aged 40-year-old man that sometimes thinks he's a lot younger than he is stood there with my eyes wide open and my mouth ajar uh, at what I was seeing. And all of a sudden, at that moment, I transformed into a five-year-old boy again. You know, you tell a five-year-old boy that there's a dragon in the closet and they're too scared to open the door. You tell a seven-year-old that there's a dragon in the closet and they're just curious enough that they might open the door. But you tell a 10-year-old that there's a dragon in the closet and they won't even budge because dragons aren't real. They're nothing but fantasy. You see, something tragic happens the older we get. And the older we get, we lose that magical thing called our sense of awe, wonder, and imagination. And our imaginations are really, really important. And Disney, perhaps even better than the church, does a wonderful job of helping us reimagine once again, of enchanting even disenchanted adults, that perhaps, that perhaps there maybe is a kind of love that can transform a beast into a man again, that maybe, just maybe, there is a kind of kiss that can wake us up from our slumber, that maybe, the curse or the spell of the wicked witch or the sorcerer, that this dark cloud that we feel like is hovering over us sometimes, that this spell, that this curse can maybe, maybe be reversed. And they do a wonderful job, again, of re-enchanting us uh, 
who are disenchanted. And even if we don't believe that these stories are true, because they're nothing but fiction, there's a reason why we all have the Disney app. There's a reason why we all love these stories, and there's a reason why we all resonate with these stories, because even though we don't believe these stories are true, there's a part of us that desires for these stories to be true. And you know what, your desires and your longings and your affections are important because when your imagination hits a limit, and it inevitably does with all of us, your desires and longings can often stretch the limits of your imagination even more so. And our imaginations are crucial because our imaginations help us grasp the ungraspable. And I am not using the word imagination in a very childlike, myopic sense but I'm using the word imagination in a much bigger sense, like, where did I put my keys again? You have to imagine where you last left it. Where did I put my phone? Like, I, I lose it all the time. You have to imagine where you put it. Imagination helps us grasp the ungraspable. And you know what? It is no different with God himself. Well, if we haven't met yet, my name is Aaron, and I'm one of the pastors at Exilic. And at the top of every year, we do a sermon series on our DNA. And our DNA consists of three things, our name, our mission, and our vision. And we devote two sermons to each of these three things. For the past two weeks, we've taken a look at our unique name. And for the next two weeks, we're gonna be taking a look at our mission. And our mission is printed right here on these blue banners, and it is to inspire thinkers to believe and to inspire believers to think. Now, for those of you who have been at Exilic for a little bit, you, might, you may have noticed a subtle, subtle change. In the past, it used to be helping thinkers believe, helping believers think, but we've changed the word to inspiring. Now, why is that the case? Well, on the one hand, we still want to help people, whether you're a thinker, skeptic, seeker, other religion, or Christian, we still want to help you. But what kind of help do we want to offer you? Well, my, our mission, our goal every time we preach is that when you walk in through those doors, we want to transform you once again into a five-year-old child. We want to re-enchant you once again. To imagine, to be, to be able to imagine again, to be able to grasp the ungraspable again. And I strongly believe that our imaginations, it is the key to unlocking the modern Western disenchanted mind. You know, it wasn't science and technology alone that helped us land on the moon. Prior to our science, prior to technology, it was our sense of wonder, imagining what it would be like to walk on the craters of the surface of the moon. It was our imaginations that did that, not just science and technology. And you know what, it is no different when it comes to our pursuit and our understanding of God. Now the whole Bible itself is a magical book. It is an enchanted book. And I would say that even though the whole Bible is a wonderful book that captures our imaginations, there are three places in the Bible that do it the best. The first place is Genesis 1 with the creation account. I would say that the second place that really does capture our imagination is the prophet Ezekiel with his unique and vivid prophecies. But there is a third place in the Bible that does a wonderful job of capturing our imaginations, and that is the book of Revelation. Now, I realize that when you hear the word revelation, it conjures up all sorts of feelings and thoughts, 
most of them probably in the negative, like you're scared to read it or you're fearful of reading it. But a very simple way of describing Revelation is this. If the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation is one grand narrative, one grand story, do you know what the book of Revelation is? It is the final exclamation point to this story. It, it basically captures what the end looks like. And the writer of Revelation is a uh, man named John, and in Revelation he sees his grand vision. And he doesn't have the words or the categories to describe everything that he is seeing, and so he uses a lot of metaphors and images. But he doesn't want to just keep this vision to himself. He wants to share with uh, his generation and with us what exactly he's seeing. And so he wants us to download these images into our minds and into our hearts because they can help us with how we deal with the present. Philosopher Aristotle once said that the soul never thinks without an image. And what that means is that our image, our, our, our thoughts are always shaped in some kind of form or some kind of image. It helps us think about different things uh, better. So what does John see? Take a look with me again at verses one to three. John says, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. Take a look with me again at the language that is used here in verses one to three. In verse one, it says, then I saw. Verse two, I saw the holy city. Verse three, I heard. The latter part of verse three, look. Over 30 times in this book, John uses the phrase, behold, look, see. And what he's trying to do here is to baptize our imaginations for us to look, to see, to behold. Revelation by far, by far, it is the most sensory-laden book in the New Testament because he wants to re-enchant us once again. Uh, for those of you who are writers or have a literature background, you know um, when it comes to fiction, there's something called primary imagination and secondary imagination. Primary imagination is Reimagining something that you've experienced before in the past, like taking out the trash on a hot summer night. You can almost feel the weight of that trash bag, even as I say, the smell of the trash. You can almost hear the crickets uh, that are chirping as I say that. So primary imagination is imagining something that you've experienced, bef something before in the past. Secondary imagination, however, is imagining something that you've never experienced before, like taking out the trash on a hot summer night and you open the lid of the trash can and a blue beaming light comes shooting out of the trash can. Now, none of us have ever experienced anything like that before, but even as I'm saying this, you can imagine what that must be like. And what John is doing here what he's doing here in this vision is not primary imagination, but what he is doing here is secondary imagination because this is not something that we've experienced yet. 
but one day we will. And as we take a look at this vision, there, we can't talk about everything that John sees today. But at the very least, take a look with me at the last phrase of verse one once more. He talks about a new heavens and a new earth and the first and, uh, heaven and the first earth pass away. And then he says, there is no longer any sea. Now, as a person that loves the ocean and used to surf avidly uh, at one point in his life, why is there no sea in heaven? I mean, that makes me kind of sad. Uh, I love the ocean, I love the sound of the ocean, so why is there no sea in heaven? Well, you have to keep in mind that Revelation, in, a, in terms of a genre, it is apocalyptic, and therefore not everything in the book of Revelation is to be taken literally. There are some things that are to be taken metaphorically. And when you take a look at the Bible, oftentimes the sea or the ocean, metaphorically it represents chaos and death. So think about Noah's flood. Think about the Red Sea. The Red Sea symbolized the Israelites' death. It was a barrier for them from getting and experiencing life. And so oftentimes the sea represents chaos and death. And so when John says there is no more sea in heaven, what he is saying is this, in heaven, there is no more chaos. There is no more death. But he goes on in verse four and he says, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things uh, has passed away. Now it's hard for us to imagine a world where there is no more crying, mourning, death or pain because in our current address, this is the norm. Uh, this is what we experience often. And you know what, it was no different for John, the writer of Revelation and the people in his generation as well. And to put this letter in context, this letter was written in the first century. Some say, you know, maybe 60 AD, others think 90 AD, we're not exactly sure, but we do know that it was written uh, in the first century. And in the first century world, Christians were experiencing intense persecution under emperors Nero and Domitian. Christians were thrown into arenas, arenas that you can still visit to this day. Christians were thrown into arenas as sport, as they were being torn apart by wild beasts. Christians were impaled on stakes, and while they were still alive, they were coated with pitch and lit up like wax candles. Christians were crucified along the Pax Romana, the roads that went in and out of Rome on the sides of the road so that as the people walked in and out of Rome, everyone could publicly see that this is what will happen to you if you believe in this Jesus. Furthermore, John, the writer of this letter, prior to penning this letter, he was thrown in a cauldron of burning hot oil. And after he didn't die, he was exiled to the island of Patmos. And the most Probably the best example of this in our country is Alcatraz in the Bay Area a long time ago. And it is there in exile that he writes this letter. And as I say these things, I realize that there's somewhat of a gap for us as Westerners. But I want you to know that this type of persecution is still pervasive in our world today. A friend of mine recently said that in the past, his heroes used to be those that wrote profound theological books. But today, his heroes are those that have the inner fortitude and the gravitas to suffer for what they believe in. And those people do not exist in the West. 
his heroes now exist in the Middle East, in Africa, and in Asia. People that are being sentenced to labor camps or they will have to peel garlic without a knife, just with their fingernails, 15 hours a day, for year upon year until their fingernails fall off. People that are being sentenced to immediate death itself. Not much has changed 2,000 years later. But as I think about us in the West, how does that apply to us? Well, in many ways, there is a kind of suffering that comes from intense persecution, but there's suffering in general. And life is lived in stories. And all of us have stories of trauma, pain, and suffering. None of us is impervious to suffering. No matter what kind of designer life you set up for yourself or how posh or how educated or how much planning you do or how many vitamins you eat or if you get that physical that you're supposed to get every year, no amount of planning, education, and money will leave you immune and impervious to suffering. And I don't want to minimize the suffering that we experience here in the West. And it is to John's audience in the first century and to us today in the 21st century that John writes this letter, a letter of hope in the midst of all that uh, you're going through. So how does this hope help us in the present? Because as a practitioner, this is what I care about. How is this gonna help me on an ordinary Monday morning when I hit the snooze button, I put on my pants one leg at a time, drink my Starbucks, squeeze into the subway, and stare blankly at my computer screen on an ordinary Monday morning. How is this going to help me? Well, Tim, Tim Keller has a really good example on hope uh, that I want to share with you. And he says, imagine that there are two female workers, and they're both given the same assignment, and that assignment is to assemble some kind of machinery with gadgets and screws and washers. So they're given the exact same job, under the exact same conditions, same lighting, same chair, same desk, same temperature, same job, same exact setting. However, the difference is one worker is promised $15,000 at the end of the year, while the other person is promised $15 million at the end of the year. And on one particular Monday morning, the person that is set to make $15,000 says, this job sucks. It's so boring, it's so tedious, all we do is like, you know, put washers and screws and gadgets together. It's so boring. I think I'm going to quit. And the person that's scheduled to make $15 million says, well, it's, it's not that bad. I mean, at least we get free lunch thrown in, so it makes it a little bit more bearable. Now, here are two people with the exact same job under the exact same conditions with two different experiences. Why? And Keller says, it's because of their hopes. One person has a big hope. The other person has a small hope. And what you believe about tomorrow shapes and forms how you live today. And you know what? Every one of us in this room, whether you, you consider yourself religious or not, all of us have hopes. Andrew Dalbanco is an uh, American Studies professor at Columbia. Some of you may have had him. Dalbanco says, do you feel like your life is meaningless? If you say no, the reason for that is because you have a hope. So we all have hopes, whether they're big or they're small, and they shape how we live today. So what are your hopes? 
because your hopes transform how you live in the today. And so Keller goes on to say this. It's not in your bulletin, but he says, Silicon Valley and others maintain the idea that science and technology inevitably make the world better. Many excited voices describe a future in which the problems of aging, disease, poverty, and inequality are all solved or transformed. On the other hand, the old hopefulness about the future has disappeared. For the first time, Americans are saying that their children's lives probably will not be better than their own. And I have personal friends that say they don't know if they want to have a child anymore because they don't want to bring them into this world. Also, a remarkable number of recent films depict a dystopian future in which civilization is largely decimated. There is pessimism among many that technology is removing our privacy, dehumanizing us, and making us vulnerable to future terrorism and to exploitation on an unprecedented scale. So Keller's doing it basically um, uh, covering what our hope looks like from a nationwide perspective. I do want to turn to your first, uh, first page of your bulletin go across the pond to England to hear what Hawking once said at a lecture that he gave in Cambridge prior to his passing. And again, keep in mind, we all have hopes. And this is what Hawking says, my only fear for mankind is this, that we have arrived on the scene because of evolution, because of naturalistic selection. And natural selection assumes natural rejection, which means we have arrived here because of our aggression. And my hope is that somehow we can prevent from eating each other up for another hundred years, because by that point, science would have devised a scheme to take all of us to the different planets of the universe, and no one atrocity would have destroyed us at the same time. And so even in this quote, we see that Hawking has a fear, and his fear is that we're all going to eat each other up and kill one another. So what is his hope? His hope is that eventually we all live on the different planets in our galaxy. So all of us have hopes. But as you take a look at this hope, for example, that Hawking has, uh, it is a hope, first of all, that is not guaranteed. And it is a hope that is exclusively limited to people that do live in the future. A hope that even excludes Hawking himself. But in Christianity, there is a hope that is guaranteed. And there is a hope that is not exclusively limited to people who live in the future, but people who lived in John's day and to people who lived in our day as well. And it's found in verse 3. Let me read that for us. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Look, God's dwelling place is now among the people, and he will dwell with them. They will be his people, and God himself will be with them, and he will be their God. The word that is used here in verse 3 for dwelling is the word tabernacle. Now, the, the theme of tabernacle or temple is one of the most traceable themes in the Old Testament because it was in the tabernacle and the temple that God dwelt. And just so you know the distinction between the two, think of a temple as more stationary in the city of Jerusalem. Think of a, a tabernacle as more of a temple on wheels. It was more portable. So when the Israelites were wandering in the wilderness, God dwelt with them in a tabernacle. But both the temple and the tabernacle was where God dwelt 
and both the temple and the tabernacle was merely a copy of the original temple and the original tabernacle, and that is the Garden of Eden. And it is in the Garden of Eden that God dwelt. Now, you all know the story. Adam and Eve rebel, they disobey, and as a result of that, there is now a separation between them and God because of their sin. There is a chasm and an alienation. But not only is there a separation and alienation with God, Adam and Eve are also exiled so that there is now a chasm and separation between them and paradise that is lost, as John Milton would say. A separation between them and Eden and the world as we know it has never been the same again. But the promise that we have here is that paradise that was once lost will be found again. And here's why it's so important. In 2015, there was a movie that came out called The Martian, starring Matt Damon. And Matt Damon plays a character named uh, Mark, Mark Watney. And uh, Dr. Watney and his crew are on a, um, some sort of expedition on Mars. But as soon as they land, there is a severe red dust storm uh, that is tornadoing through uh, the entire planet. And so everyone is scattered and freaking out, and uh, they get back onto the ship, but the only problem is they can't find Dr. Watney. And so they think he's dead, and so they fly back to Earth. However, Dr. Watney is still alive, <laughs> stranded millions of miles away from Earth on Mars. And all he has left is whatever instruments that they left behind, and Dr. Watney has to figure out a way to survive on Mars and somehow contact Earth millions of miles away. And as, as he's trying to think about how to survive, this isn't in your bulletin, but this is what Dr. Watney says. If the oxygenator breaks down, I'll suffocate. If the water reclaimer breaks down, I'll die of thirst. If the hab breaches, I'll just kind of implode. And if none of those things happen, I'll eventually run out of food and starve to death. So yeah, I am expletive. And so the subtitle of the movie is Bring Him Home. And I like that because home can't be Mars. Why can't it be Mars? It can't be Mars because if we lived on Mars, we would die instantaneously. We were not made for death. We were made for life. That's why Mars can't be home. Now apply that logic to Earth. We might not die instantaneously, but we are decaying, and eventually, every one of us will die. But if we're made to live and not die, how can this world be our home then? Do you see how that logic works? And so what is the point of Christianity? What is one of the main hopes that we have? That someone is going to bring us home. And the person that is going to do that is found in verses five through six. And it says, he who was seated on the throne said, I am making everything new. Then he said, write these down for these words are trustworthy and true. He said to me, it is done. I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. And here in verse six, it says, to the thirsty, I will give water without cost. In other words, I will give you eternal life for free. 
And the reason why we can experience eternal life is because it cost the life of God's only son, Jesus. In John chapter one, it says that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Here's that word dwell once again. And that word dwell in John chapter one, once again is the word tabernacle. The word became flesh and tabernacled amongst us. In other words, the alpha and the omega, the cosmic transcendent king of the entire universe, squeezed himself into a seven-pound baby. J.R. Packer says, the more you think about the incarnation, the more staggering it becomes. And the reason why the cosmic God, the Alpha and the Omega, squeezed himself in the dimensions of a seven-pound baby is to become like one of us, to live the life that we should have lived, to die the death that we deserved. But not only that, to secure our eternal destiny for us so that we do have a guaranteed hope. And it is on that rugged cross that our curse that we experience because of our sin the death that we deserve is finally reversed. Which is why we can now sing when we come to church or in the car or in the subway, uh, we can sing the famous line in Amazing Grace. When we've been there 10,000 years, bright shining as the sun. Have you ever thought about that line? When we've been there 10,000 years, 20,000 years, 100,000 years, we will still be bright shining as the sun. And the reason for that is because on the cross, Jesus expired and the blankest canvas ever became defiled for us uh, in our place. T.S. Eliot, the, poem, uh, the poet in his uh, poem, East Coker, in the beginning of the poem, he says, in my beginning is my end. But at the end of the poem, he says, but in my end is my beginning. And that poem really encapsulates well what the bookends of the Bible are about. Genesis, in my beginning is my end, but in Revelation, in my end is my beginning. Now, I want you to know that apart from God, in your beginning is your end, but even within your own worldview, in your end is your end. <laughs> there is no new beginning. But Christianity offers you a greater hope than this world, secular materialism can offer you. And because it's a greater hope, therefore it should affect the way that you live today. As the Puritan Thomas Brooks once said, it is this hope that can help us see through the darkest of clouds. Even the dark clouds that are forming right now in the skies of Australia. And I wanna close with one final quote which can be found in your bulletin. And the writer says, it was a day before the Blue Mountains faced the most serious level of fire. What a welcome to our new home. We had just arrived at our new residence in the Blue Mountains west of Sydney, and we were facing the threat of it all going up in smoke. We placed buckets of water on our front and back lawns, plugged our gutters and filled them with water, trimmed branches near the house. 
Then we packed photos and passports into our luggage, got into our car, and drove away. We had become fire refugees. And yet moving to a bushfire danger zone has brought with it some unexpected blessings. Let's face it, we expend a lot of energy in trying to make our lives danger-free. And while much of this is good, we can start deluding ourselves that life is inherently safe. We can start to expect, even demand, that our lives be comfortable and secure. And so when difficulties come, we're thrown off balance. We can't make sense of it. How can this be happening, we ask. But living in a bushfire zone has corroded any belief in inherent safety. When a massive out-of-control fire is burning a mere 15 kilometers away, any illusion of safety disappears. Instead, I'm forced to look for safety in some place other than this world. I'm compelled to look to Jesus, the one who has promised to make all things new. When this world can't provide the safety I so desperately crave, I'm driven to the promise of a new world, a better resurrected world, where fire will be no more. And in the midst of anxiety, in the midst of mourning, I find hope. And this might be the reason why uh, the prolific English writer G.K. Chesterton once said, when I finally became a Christian, I understood why I felt homesick at home. C.S. Lewis once said that for Christians, our understanding of hope is nostalgia in reverse, which I absolutely love. Whenever we get nostalgic and we look at the house that we used to live in or the school that we used to attend, we get this feeling of nostalgia as we look back in the past. But for us, our understanding of hope is nostalgia in reverse. So let me close with uh, one final line from Disney since I opened up with uh, my trip to Disney. Walt Disney once said, all our dreams can come true if we have the courage to pursue them. And I don't know where you're at in terms of your spiritual journey, but it does take a little bit of courage to believe in something like this. But the reward and the dividends are greater than anything else that this world can offer. Let's pray together. God, thank you for uh, uh, the hope that we have in you. Uh, sometimes we are tempted to place our hopes in another person, in marriage, having kids in a job, in our education, and in our status. Uh, but the problem with that is that suffering can take all those things away. It can take away our spouse. It can take away our kids. It can take away our finances. And then we are left searching frantically to find another hope and to find another meaning. But we thank you that because of you, uh, suffering cannot take you away, that in the midst of losing it all, we still have something that we can anchor ourselves in that nothing can take away from us or rob us or strip us of. And so we thank you that all the promises that we have in Revelation are ours. Help us to trust in them, for they are trustworthy and true. In your name I pray, amen.